Uh, today we are reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. Today is the last of our uh, sermon series uh, called Living Life as a Relationship Series. As we've been learning what it looks like to be a people of God with the different relationships and uh, communities and opportunities that we have here uh, in, in, in our context in Vancouver. And today's on the topic of the truth and reconciliation. Uh, and as this September 30th, uh, this coming Friday is a national day for truth and reconciliation. We thought it would take a little bit of time for us as we talk about sharing the gospel, as we talk about our heart for, uh, for God and for Vancouver and for our context here. This is, this is very much a topic we need to talk about. And I've grown up, I'm not sure about you, but I've grown up for much of my life ignorant of the pain suffered by the indigenous peoples of Canada. And my earliest memories of learning about the First Nations culture and people is back in grade four where our grade four teacher taught us about the daily lifestyles, the kind of food, where, where, uh, what it was like living uh, on, on different parts of BC, especially here, uh, and what the, the way of life for the indigenous people here in BC. And after that, I really didn't think too deeply, too deeply about the pain uh, that the indigenous people in North America really experienced. And then there's films that came along, like Pocahontas, which was a Disney cartoon film in 1995, who really romanticized po Pocahontas, a Powhatan princess who encountered John Smith, who fell in love and got married. And, but the real story, the real story was that Pocahontas was captured and held for ransom by the English colonists uh, during the, during, in 1613. And she was forced to convert to Christianity and was baptized. It was actually renamed Rebecca. But you don't hear about that. Uh, in the movie or in the story. She married a tobacco planter, actually not John Smith, but John Rolfe, uh, at the age of 17, some say maybe even younger, having a son just a year later. And when we ask why, uh, when asked the story, uh, when asked why the story of Pocahontas has been romanticized, Camelia, Camelia Townsend, uh, she's an author of Pocahontas, the Powhatan Dilemma, and a history professor at Rector's University, she said this uh, with an interview to Smithsonian. The idea is that this is a good Indian. She admires the white man, admires Christianity, admires the culture, wants to have peace with these people, is willing to live with these people rather than her own people, marry him rather than one of her own people. That whole idea makes people in white America culture, uh, white American culture, feel good about our history that we're, we're not doing anything wrong to the Indians, but really we're helping them, and the good ones appreciated it. 
as we read that, as, as hard as it is for us to digest and to listen, and how all of us here in our context are part of this issue that's going on in our society, we have to understand how did this really happen, that how did this come about? And the church maybe is a little bit more responsible than we thought we were. You see, back in the 15th century, back in the 15th century, the church had a lot of power over the government, and this was also known as the age of exploration. It was during this time that the doctrine of discovery, which you maybe have heard about in the news, uh, came about. It's the doctrine of discovery was this legal concept in the 15th century uh, that was a papal bull, which is an official declaration from the Pope himself that gave the church blessing to European explorers to discover or to exploit the land in the New World and in Africa that was already inhabited by non-Christians. And this concept came from this uh, terra nullius, which is this Latin word meaning deserted or inhabited, that if they went into a place that was inhabited, that they're able to conquer it and claim it as God's. But this definition ended up evolving into not just inhabited, uh, but inhabited by civilized people. Then it was in 1455 that the Pope, uh, he issued... Uh, the bull that gave uh, this, this command, this decree that gave Portugal the right to conquer and slave any pagan lands or peoples. And then in 1492, Christopher Columbus arrived in Americas, funded by the Spanish. And over time, this kind of philosophy and this kind of uh, legal idea that European nations had the right to non-Christian lands uh, infiltrated many parts of Europe. Non-Catholic countries like England found inspiration and justification for such Doctrines And from the view of indigenous leaders, as I'm reading this, as I'm explaining this, you can see the pain and the hurt and the, uh, and, the, and the bitterness that comes from this. Because this gave European settlers the justification to take land and to ignore treaties. It was also ideas like this that also seeped into Canada when the French and the English uh, showed up. Doctrines like this contributed to the thinking of how indigenous peoples are inferior to non-indigenous people, which eventually paved the ways to the laws, uh, Canadian laws like the Indian Act in 1876, and later the residential school system, where at least 150,000 First Nation children were forced to attend the 130 residential schools. In the words of Desmond Tutu, the South African Anglican bishop and theologian, once a voice for the voiceless black Africans in South Africa, he wrote this, in his book, one of the most blasphemous consequences of injustice, especially race, racist injustice, is that it can make a child of God doubt that he or she is a child of God. There's been a lot of work towards reconciliation, but the work is not done yet. And I don't know how you're feeling as I'm explaining that, the history of the church, of how it started here in North America. I don't know about you, but this grieves my heart. This hurts my heart. It's bad when evil is done by anyone, but it's worse when it's done by the church, when it's done in the name of Jesus. There are some dark times in the history of the church, and this is one of them where the church got it wrong, and it's a dangerous thing when we say we're doing something in the name of Jesus, and no matter the devotion or the passion, it doesn't make it right, and it doesn't make it good. And what was the result, well, as indigenous writer and founder of the North American Institute for Indigenous Studies, Theological Studies, Richard Twist, he once wrote, the gospel of Jesus has not always been good news for the Native American. And I wonder why. 
as I read of this history. And coming into today's sermon, I still have in mind, freshly in mind, the 215 bodies buried at the Kamloops Residential School that were found last year. And many indigenous communities still today don't have access to clean water, to health care, to just feeling safe and being safe and, and access to education. And I'm thinking today, I was nervous. I was anxious going into the sermon today because I'm like, what, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I don't say the right thing? Like, what is my role here in 2022 as a Christian? And no, you might be thinking, we weren't there when the first explorers came. And no, we didn't set up the residential schools. No, you might not even uh, be currently saying anything obvious that's contributing to the pain and the suffering to the indigenous people that we have, uh, that are suffering here in BC and in Canada. But, but if we call ourselves Christians, we have a responsibility to reconcile because we follow a God of reconciliation. We follow a God who reconciles because we follow a God who reconciles, we also carry the same burden. And the hope today is that we would be a people of reconciliation, not just in thought, not even only in heart, but really through and through. No matter the situation, that we will be a people of reconciliation, of forgiveness, of grace, of hope, of relationship, no matter the context. And I stand firm on this idea today that reconciliation is the way in which God makes all things new. A reconciliation is the way in which God makes all things new. It doesn't matter if it was back on the cross or even before the cross. The reconciliation is the way in which God makes all things new. That he is a reconciling God. He's a God that wants relationship, that wants healing, that wants us to experience him. Three points, as some of you have already caught on to the way that I preach. Firstly, we were brought into a relationship with God through the work of reconciliation. Secondly, we are stewards and entrusted with this message of reconciliation. And thirdly, God wants to speak to the world through you. Now, firstly, we were brought into a relationship with God through the work of reconciliation. We read this in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17. And the next slide here. Uh, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Whenever we read therefore, as some theologians have said it, what is the therefore, therefore? If anyone is in Christ, how do we know if we are in Christ? See, therefore, if anyone's in Christ, the new creation has come. If God has done a new work in you, therefore, if God is already in your life and doing something new, if you are already reconciled with God and have this relationship with him, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. We read here that there will be a new creation. And this language of creation, new creation, reminds us maybe of Isaiah 43, 19. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. You see the, the context of Isaiah there and the people of God, that they were in trouble, that people were invading into their place and they're losing their land, losing their freedom. And even though they're invaded by foreign nations, it's okay because God is still in control. Even though all things seem lost, God is still in control. He is still doing a new thing, even though there's pain, even though there's suffering, even though there is hardship in your life and in the life of his people. 
And what is this new creation? Well, with the mention of creation, we autom- automatically uh, go back to Genesis 1 and 2, a time when, when God was creating. And all things were new, not just new, but they were, they were exactly how they were supposed to be. And then same, sin came into the world in, in Genesis 3, and it kind of messed things up a lot. And, and, and relationships went bad. Our, our relationship with the earth and with the land and with people, all things uh, went, went, went astray. But this new thing that God is doing, he's doing it again in, in creation. He's creating once again out of the brokenness, out of the nothingness of the world, like he did in Genesis 1 and 2, he's also doing that again here today. And he has done it. That God, again, is bringing in a new creation at this time by sending his son Jesus into the world, into the old creation when things were corrupt and bad, sending his son Jesus into the old creation in order to reconcile it, in order to transform it. And as Christians, we are already living in this newness. We're living in this newness of life, where Jesus already did the heavy lifting for us. He's already reconciled you and all of us to God, having this relationship with him. We read this in in verse 18 onwards, that all of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. So even though we sinned, we did things that were against God, even though we, we were corrupt and doing things that did not please God, God reached out first, as is the theme of today, that he reached out first and he reconciled us uh, with him. And you see, we have to understand this really important thing as we talk about reconciliation, that God, he didn't need to reconcile with us. God didn't need to reconcile with us. It was the other way around. It is through the act of reconciliation that God initiated that God implemented, that there is this restoration for humanity, that God reached out first. And it was because God initiated reconciliation that there is forgiveness for us, that there's healing, that there's hope, there's goodness, there's joy, all these things, that God loved you enough to die for you before you even knew him. That's the story of reconciliation. That's how we understand reconciliation uh, of the gospel of Jesus. To put it another way, Uh, How God ushers in this new creation, which we're living in now, is through the restoration brought through the act of reconciliation. That rhymed a bit more than (laughs) I intended it to. But it's through the act of reconciliation that we have this restoration in the world. So we start to understand what the purpose of reconciliation is. That God reconciled us to him so that we can be restored, so that we can experience joy, so that we can experience hope, and we, we can experience the good things of God, that God makes all things new through this reconciliatory act. And I've shared this before, probably more than once. Have you heard of the term kintsugi? Kintsugi, it's the Japanese art of golden joinery, where there's broken vases, uh, broken pottery, and they make new art by using gold to connect the pottery, uh, what, what was being made, whether the bowl or the cup or the bigger vase is the art of uh, fixing broken pottery into new art. And I want to have that image in our minds of what con- reconciliation looks like. That, it's, that the art of reconciliation is like, uh, the act of reconciliation is like the gold that's joining broken pieces together. That's what God is doing as he's reconciling us to him. He's filling the cracks and the brokenness of our lives and our relationship with him with gold. And that's what God did for us through the work of the cross, through the work of Jesus. 
And maybe that's why the Apostle Peter encourages all of us in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. That when we love one another, that when we sacrifice for one another, when we, when, when we think uh, in the shoes of one another, that we are loving each other deeply and it covers over these cracks. And we're joining and mending together something that was broken and making it into something new, something that's beautiful. So we see here that we are brought into a relationship with God through the act of reconciliation. But we're also stewards of this. That we're stewards and entrusted with this message of reconciliation. We already read that God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, but he didn't only give it to us, but he committed it to us. He entrusted it to us. In 2 Corinthians uh, 5, uh, 19b, the second part of that, we read, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. This word for reconcile, this word for, for reconcile means to bring back to its original state of harmony. It means the exchange of a hostile relationship for a friendly relationship. So when we say we've been reconciled with God, that our relationship with God has been broken, and now it's been made back to the original state of harmony. When we're reconciled to God, and one day, for all of us that believe in him, we'll stand in him in heaven forever where things are perfect, where there's no more tears, no more fears, everything is good, no more pain. I'm thankful for that, that we will be transformed back to how things ought to be like. A place that's perfect, a place that's good, and that's what God's reconciliatory work does. And since God has committed this message to us, since God, when he reconciles, he's bringing in this new creation, all of us, we're challenged to do the same thing. That when we're going around reconciling, reconciling relationships, when we go into the, the, the reconciling work of the cross and bringing that into the world, we are also doing the same thing. We're bringing in this new creation that leads to this new way of life. You have your Bibles, I don't have it up there, but in verse 14 we read this, that Christ, his love, it compels us. Because of this, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This means that when we're compelled by Christ, we're compelled by his love, we, sh we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him. We live for him. And we go out in this world and we carry this message for us, uh, with us for Christ. We live for him and we know how broken the world is. We know how bad the world is right now, especially in, in the context of what we're talking about today, the truth of reconciliation uh, day uh, and the hurts and the pains of the, the indigenous nations in this country. We know the amount of work that needs to be done. But what do we do? What does it mean to be committed to the message of reconciliation? How do we be part of the work of bringing back the original state of harmony uh, that God is calling us towards? How do we be part of making all things new? And there are a lot of practical ideas, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit later, but my mind, I feel God leading my heart as well into, in, in, into this part of maybe the first step to being stewards of reconciliation for us, for me and for you, is actually just to lament. That maybe that's a call for you today. That's the very first step to, to lament. To be good stewards in our topic today means to lament. And to lament means to grieve heavily actually be cut to the heart by this message, by the pain of, uh, of the indigenous people. This is difficult for those of us who maybe grew up in a church tradition that's always happy-clappy, that always looks to the bright side of things, but there's a space and a place 
for lament in the church body. I recently read this book, 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act, and I highly recommend it to you. As I'm reading through the 21 things that I did not know about the Indian Act, I learned that when this act was passed, how the Canadian, by the Canadian government in 1876, just learned about the denying, denial of women's rights and their status, uh, the implementation of residential schools and reserves, how they were prohibited of speaking their native tongue, and they're denied the right to vote. And on and on and on and on. As I was reading this, I could feel, feel my heart sink and just be crushed. I was like, imagine myself in those situations, imagining my son or my daughter in that situation. And I remember uh, driving onto reserve at Sail First Nations on Vancouver Island, uh, how when you drive into the First Nations and that land there, the first thing you see is actually a cemetery. Uh, the entrance to the cemetery, the road to the cemetery over time had to change because the cemetery grew more and more which with the death of their youth every single year uh, from the challenges that they had. That this road literally once was right beside the cemetery but now had to curve around it as the cemetery grew. I remember my heart being devastated as I heard that story. See, as human beings and especially as Christians, we're meant to stare and to share into the brokenness that we're to stand alongside one another. And an article uh, on NT Writes Online, on his website, explains lament in this way. Lament is a form of praise. It's a, form, it's a proof of a relationship as well. It's a pathway to intimacy with God. It's a prayer for God to act. But what I also held on to was lastly this. Lament is the participation in the pain of others. That maybe firstly for you, if we're going to join in the reconciliatory work of God in this world, where there are many places for us to be part of that work, but especially in the, the topic of truth and reconciliation, is for us to participate in the pain. It's to sit in the pain, is to listen to the pain, is to hear the pain of the other. Because we need to realize how bad it is in order to believe something needs to be done about it, Right? That's true. I think that's the same for us in our faith with Jesus, that many of us, maybe we don't realize the state of devastation that we're in, that we kind of think life is good, everything is good, this life is it, and that's all that there is, and I don't think about anything else. I don't want to get too deep about thinking about what the purpose of life is about, why I'm around, why I have this pain, why there's suffering and evil in this world, and we might just put that off into the side. But when we realize how bad things really are, that forces us to ask these deeper questions. And we need people to sit with us as well. As Soon Chan Ra, he's the professor of church development evangelism at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago. He writes in his book, Prophetic Lament, the tendency to view the holistic work of the church as the action of the privileged towards the marginalized often derails the work of true community healing. Ministry in the urban context, acts of justice and racial reconciliation require a deeper engagement with the other an engagement that acknowledges suffering rather than glossing over it. True reconciliation, justice, and shalom require a remembering of suffering, an unearthing of a shameful history, and a willingness to enter into lament. Lament calls for an authentic encounter with the truth and challenges privilege, because privilege would hide the truth that creates discomfort. I want to add on maybe and challenge us too, which I've been wrestling with this as well, that many of us maybe would say that we don't have privilege and maybe that's actually the first sign that maybe we do, 
that when we don't acknowledge that we have privilege, when we're blindsided to that kind of idea, we become uh, oblivious to the power uh, that we inherently have as people living here in Vancouver. And through this discomfort, as I'm reading these, these quotes, as we're talking about this uh, uncomfortable uh, topic, think about it through the people that have suffered, that have gone through ongoing pain. And through this lament, though, we have to understand that God is creating something new in the hurts as we sit with people beside us, in the hurts and pains that God is doing something new. And God has entrusted us. He has given us this message of reconciliation to those around us. And thirdly and lastly, God, he wants to speak to the world through you. And you might be thinking, what do I possibly have to offer and that might be true because I would say I, every time I come on to the platform here, I don't have anything to offer. It's actually the Christ in me. It's the Jesus in me and the message that I'm carrying. It's the, mess, it's the weight of the one who's sending this message that gives what we're saying, what we're talking about here, uh, uh, that gives us the reason to listen to it at all. It's not us that's really speaking. It's the message that you're carrying, that you're carrying into this world and that God wants to speak to the world through you because of how he has changed you how you have encountered him, and how he wants to bring healing and a new creation into the world through you into your different context. And this is true whether we're talking about our indigenous communities here in, in, in Canada or any other relationship where you might be experiencing some ruffling, some conflict, some pain and hurt. See, since reconciliation is the way in which God makes all things new, God wants to speak through you to bring about reconciliation too reconciliation too, but only if we're willing to stand in the gap, only if we're willing to stand and stare at the pain and sit in the hurt with people. And when we live for Christ through living for others, I'm going to say that again, when we live for Christ through living for others, there is an inbreaking of God's kingdom into the world. In that time when we're living for Christ through living for others, in that very moment, Christ's kingdom is shining forth into the world at that moment. We read in verse 20 onwards, we are there for Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word ambassador, ambassador here, I think we have a, a, a picture of that. We kind of understand what that means, but it means spokesperson. It means representative, that you, as you walk into the world, as you have Jesus in you, you are God's ambassador. You are his representative, no matter where it is that you're going. You're his spokesperson. And I love this in the passage. It's as if God was making his appeal through us, through you. It's as if God is literally speaking through you to the people. That, and when God speaks to me and you, he speaks, and we, we in turn, we, uh, speak out that message that the world is hearing from God himself. Through our actions, they hear, they hear God through our actions, they hear God through our words, through our thoughts, through how we conduct ourselves, how we interact with the world, that as we go in this world, there's this inbreaking of God's shalom in our context and in the world. See, people who live for Christ through living for others, this is the beginning of restoration in the world. Where we don't only think about ourselves, but we think about the people around us. When we live in that way, there's this restorative act in that process. And what Paul is doing here, as one commentator puts it, he's drawing out the consequence, the consequences of the gospel. 
that when you receive the gospel, it's not just, yay, Jesus, <laughs> I'm saved and it's good. There, there's this consequence of that. There's this weight when we bear the message of the cross. There's this weight that we carry when we go into the world. We no longer see people from this worldly point of view. We no longer look at pain and suffering and be like, well, that's just the way it is, and we keep walking. No, we see it through the compassion of Jesus. We, through, we see it through the eyes of Jesus. Jesus, who would stop and kneel beside those who are hurting. That he would stop, even though he was busy and had an agenda, stop and speak to those around them. As Ugandan priest and theologian Emmanuel Katangoli says in his book, Reconciling All, Reconciling All Things, he says that God's gift of a call to be Christ ambassadors of reconciliation intends to unseat other lords, power, nationalism, race, or ethnic loyalty as an end in itself, and give birth to deeper allegiances, stories, spaces, and communities that are a demonstration plot of the reality of God's new creation in Christ. Put simply, reconciliation both names the church as and requires the church to be the sign and agent of God's reconciliation. That as we go forth from this place, the words that we speak and don't speak really speak to the world. As we go into the world, we are sharing with the world what Jesus is like. And the 15th century was a dark time that we really did not do as a church collectively do a good job and showing people what Jesus is like. In the act of reconciling, we're showing to the world as we go and we forgive, as we are the first to extend grace to people around us, as we kneel with the hurting and those in pain, we're showing to the world who God is and what he really is like. And that's why it grieves us, it ought to grieve us when things are done in the name of Jesus that actually end up in evil and end up in pain and suffering of others. As we read at the end of verse 21, we, we see that we are to become the righteousness of God to people, meaning ethically good in conduct, morally right, virtuous. We're to act justly in all things, and that shows the God that we follow. In an article titled, Our Gospel is Too Small, Joanne Beachy writes this, that a gospel that truly reflects the good news of Christ's redeeming work will do so much more than address the hope of an afterlife. Embodying the gospel is about bringing the kingdom of God near. It is reflecting the reign of Christ within communities which nurtures wholeness and well-being in every area of life. When relationships are functioning as God intended, people will not be held in bondage to injustice, poverty, and oppression. When humankind is taking seriously the mandate to steward and care for creation, the communities will flourish because when the land suffers, the rest of creation suffers. When the land thrives, people thrive. When the church works to ensure that communities have sustainable food sources, we communicate that in God's economy, there is food for all so that no one goes hungry. When our international workers working in cultures that are oppressive of women, for example, empower women and girls through education, we introduce the truth that women also have dignity and value. And when th all this is done, the gospel in its fullness, when this is done, the world will know and the world will hear the true gospel of Jesus. Now, as we're talking about truth and reconciliation, I by no means are an expert. There's people in Vancouver that are way better in speaking on this topic. But you might be asking, as I end this sermon here in this series, as we go into Missions Month and as we understand our context 
that God calls us to here, there are certain ways that we can be involved. In the coming months, I'm not sure when we can able to set this up, we're looking to set up a blanket exercise workshop where we're able to share in the history of the indigenous and non-indigenous peoples on this land, where we come together through the power of bringing in blankets. As we stand on these blankets, we come to understand what it looks like, uh, to understand the loss that the indigenous people uh, have experienced. Maybe for you, it's to attend workshops like that or others in our city. Maybe it's to read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, the calls to action, 94 calls to action, and the report there. Maybe this coming Friday, you want to, if you have kids or you're uh, uh, involved in kids' ministry, to read a children's book on Indigenous history. You see, reconciliation happens in many ways, but it must start with us, us carrying the message to the people around us. And today, as I end this sermon and the series, uh, even in the simple act of a land acknowledgement, which has never been done here in LLC, can be a simple act and a simple step of reconciliation. A simple step of saying, hey, we're committed to healing, we're committed to reconciling, we're com com committed to moving forward towards the beautiful new creation that God has for us here today. So here, let me read the line acknowledgement for us here at Lord's Love. We at Lord's Love Church acknowledge that we live, work, and worship on the unceded traditional territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Let's pray. Father, the pain is deep and the work is much. But no, Father, we know that your heart hurts even more for your people. So God, as we speak on the topic of truth and reconciliation, God, I pray that it won't just end there as an idea, as something that we've heard time and time again, Lord, but we would truly be people of truth and people of reconciliation. That God, we would bring in your shalom in this world, whether it's in our workplaces, whether it's in our friendships and families, in our in whatever context, God, call us, Lord, into action. Holy Spirit, fill us so that we don't sit idly by, but help us to realize the history and the context that we are born into and the work that you now call us into as well. Father, we pray for Lord's love that we will be a beacon of hope, a beacon of light, a beacon of love, that you will correct us in ways that we have gone wrong, that we will do only things that are pleasing to you, we do things that are only glorifying to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.